Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the artists, producers, and industry leaders keeping theater alive and bringing plays to your screen during the pandemic. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Kemp Powers. He's a writer who's having a Hollywood moment right now with not one but two notable films this winter. The Pixar movie Soul, now on Disney+, and the drama One Night in Miami, coming to Amazon Prime January 15th. One Night in Miami began life as a play which premiered in L.A. in 2013 and had a well-received run in London before it became the Oscar and Emmy-winning actor Regina King's directorial debut, with a cast that includes Tony winner Leslie Odom Jr. Powers is in the virtual studio with me to tell us about the real-life story that inspired the play, how he reimagined his own work to shift it from the stage to the screen, and what it means to him to have the project he's been working on for years come out right now. Hey, Kim. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Before we talk about One Night in Miami, the film, let's talk a little bit about One Night in Miami, the play. Um, First of all, how did you discover the story of this one night? It seems like such an unlikely... It's so it seems so unlikely that all these people who are as prominent as they were were all all knew each other and all hung out at this very important moment in their time. It seems like you made it up, but I know it, it's it's funny because I guess unlikely, but then when you really think about it, it seems more likely than not. I mean, one of the things we mm-hmm. love we love reading about things like the Harlem Renaissance and the the intersection between black politics, creativity, sports, entertainment, all those things, and you know part of the reason why is segregation. You know, like up until fairly recent time in our history, regardless of what you do in your life, if you're black, you're still in the same uh, communities. And it actually was way more common for folks to interact in these ways, especially if you shared a certain politics, if you if you know, if you were of a similar stature. Um, What was interesting to me about these four, because, again, it was a very real night. I discovered it when I was reading. It was a book by the late Mike Marcusi called um, Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali and the Spirit of the 60s. It was about the intersection between the civil rights movement and sports. And there was just one paragraph that said, on February 25th, 1964, Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali, defeated Sonny Liston in Miami, Florida, which was segregated at the time still. Um, But no one thought he was going to win, so there was no party planned. So he retreated to the black section of town where he stayed at the 
Hampton House Hotel with his friends. Quiet night of conversation in the next morning is when he announced to the world he was the Nation of Islam. Those friends just happened to be Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. So I read that and was like, wait, hold up. Like everyone knows about the Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali relationship. But in particular, the Sam Cooke of it had me going like, wow, this is so fascinating. I want to learn more. Because if you would ask me on the day that I read that paragraph, if you had asked me who were the four most impactful icons, heroes of mine in history, I would have probably said those four men. So finding out about that really kind of sparked something in me. I was still a journalist at the time. So I set about researching how their friendship came about and how they interact with one another with every intention on writing a book about that friendship. So that was actually my initial motivation, not even to write a play. Yeah. And so when did it become a play then for you? Well, when my journalism career ended, <laughs> that'll that'll do it. The journalism <laughs> right. career ended and the book wasn't, I didn't get around to writing the book. So I had a few years worth of research sitting in boxes that I was right. like, oh, I'll do something with that later. You know, just never got around to writing the book. Yeah. And how long ago was this just for, for context? This was um, I read the like I read years ago about book? 10 years ago. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That sounds about right. Like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. years ago. I forgot what yeah. year the Mike Marcusi's book was, was first published, but it was about mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years ago in my, to my okay. recollection. And um, you know, um, as fate would have it, my journalism career was kind of wrapping up right when my playwriting, my nascent playwriting career was picking up. Um, I was writing a lot of short plays, 24-hour plays here in Los Angeles. The irony of being a New Yorker who doesn't get into playwriting until he gets to Los Angeles is not lost on me, by the way. Um, (laughs) So trust me, my, my, my theater agent from the day he met me, he was like, wow, that's really weird that you're like, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. So um, in in thinking about subjects for full-length plays, I kind of went back to that research. It's like, oh, you know, I never finished writing. I never wrote the book. Part of it was because I was able to figure out how they became friends over these those those kind of crucible several years from roughly 1962, 63 to 1965. But there were just lots of gaping holes, including like, well, what did they really talk about in the room? And, you know, there were little tidbits like they ate some vanilla ice cream, little factoids here or there, but there wasn't much. And I was like, you know, this is actually considering the reality of all the things each of those men endured in the year leading up to that night and what would happen in just the days, weeks, and months after that night, it felt like crucible was the word. It was like, it felt like that night had the potential as stage drama to be a night of transformation for all four of them. And in terms of the what kind of transformation, history itself laid out what it was, because that's reality. Jim Brown did retire from the NFL from the set of his very next movie. Malcolm X and Sam Cooke were both killed less than a year from that night. Sam Cooke did perform A Change Is Gonna Come on The Tonight Show one and only time and then died before he saw the impact of his song. Malcolm was killed before the autobiography of Malcolm X was actually published. And Cassius did change his name to Muhammad Ali, did announce that he was a Muslim. I mean, all these, that's like the reality of it. And it was just, a, I think, too much of a perfect coincidence for me not to explore that. Yeah. Was it your first full-length play? Yes. You said you were writing short plays. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was my first full-length play. And that premiered at a group in LA with uh, called Rogue Machine Theater, right? Yes, correct. Um, and how big was that production? That, that It was a 99-seat theater. 
Okay. Yeah. So 99, 99 seats. Yeah. <laughs> very, it, very small. Yeah. And it seemed to attract attention pretty quickly. At least it got some good notices. It really, and, yeah. quicker than I expected. I was yeah. really pleasantly surprised. I mean, stunned actually by just the, the reaction the play had locally here in Los Angeles. Well, well I get that LA is not a big scene as a big theater town. There's actually, yeah. there actually is a lot of activity on the theater scene, right. particularly in the equity waiver space. Uh, right. Of which you know this first production was. There's hundreds of these you know 99 seat theaters scattered all over town. They even have their own you know we have our own little like award shows that we do and everything for it. Yeah, so um, it was really really incredibly well received. It, it, honestly, I remember um, like a week after opening, going like this is the dream. Like mm. I could I, I said I could die now happy. Just <laughs> play this idea of mine right. that I'm so excited about. I actually executed that idea. It's in front of an audience. The audience is enjoying it. I'm like, my work here is done. Right. So, you know, I was really, yeah, it was really a great moment for me. And, but of course you continued to work on the play for several years thereafter as it became. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. It was, it played in London, uh, maybe three years after, um, after it premiered in, in LA, it looks like 2016, it seems like at the Donmar. Yes. And, at the Donmar warehouse. Yeah. And how, how did that come up? Well, I guess the main question is, what did you learn watching UK audiences and theater artists respond to these these people who are these Americans who are such sort of prominent figures in American history versus the way people reacted, you know, at, at your audiences in LA? There was a different reaction, but it was no less enthusiastic. If yeah. anything, I was pleasantly surprised that it was equally enthusiastic. Um, the director of the play in London, Kwame Kwearma, he yeah. had actually directed a previous production of it at Baltimore Center Stage, where he was the artistic director. So Baltimore right. was great. I mean, it was, you know, it's the State Theater of Maryland. It drew right. huge audiences, like sellout audiences, and a lot of Black people came into the theater in droves. And they were, they were incredibly enthusiastic about the play. I was actually concerned um, going to London that that enthusiasm wouldn't be anywhere near the same. I've been told about how muted audience responses can be to plays in general. Um, but our first preview, we got a standing ovation. And I remember the folks at the Dunmar say, this never happens. I was like, mm. well, great. I'm happy it's <laughs> happening now because um, I think the play really kind of calls for people to have some kind of reactions. It's meant to, you know, generate an emotional response and get you to kind of get up out of your seat, uh, so to speak. So I was pleasantly surprised by the reaction, especially considering it is such an American story. But I also think the Brits um, are really in tune to American culture. In some cases, I think the Brits are more in tune to our culture than we are. You know, I mean, think about it. The whole the whole British rock invasion largely, you know, came from bands who were fans of blues music that white kids right here in America didn't want to listen to. Right. But it really impacted kids in England. So I think that you know, they don't have the history we have. So they allow that they allow our culture to wash over them in a right. very kind of earnest, honest way. And was there a New York production of the show? Nope. Yeah. Nope. I did. Was there one on the table? Was that just not a thing that ever came together? Is it is never it, came together? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I you, yeah. you, you know, as well as I do, it's it's so bizarre that um, for all the enthusiasm uh, for the work, in, in other cities and other parts of the world, um, New York, nothing. 
Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't actually know. I had heard of One Night in Miami, the film and its reception uh, at the film festivals and all that, but I didn't know it was a play until someone pointed it out to me because I'm, you know, we in New York can be so sort of New York centric that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm from there and, and I'll yeah. admit fully that like no one invited me to the party, so mm. to speak. Um, right. And there very much is a bit of a club vibe. Yep. Um, and, and I and I'm and I feel totally I don't feel like I'm being a jerk by saying it. Like I said, I I was I'm I'm a townie like I was a city kid. I was one of those kids around the neighborhood in Brooklyn. I didn't go to a theater program like we're not supposed to have a voice at the right. end of the day. Or if we do have a voice, it's supposed to be as a tertiary character written by someone who went to a certain program. And again, pro going to your, go to the, all the programs you want. But I I treat the wonderful thing about Los Angeles. I say this as a New Yorker. Mm. is the egalitarian nature of the arts here. Mm. Anyone can do it. And if, if it connects with an audience, it connects with an audience. Yeah. And it's a lot less clubby. Yeah. Um, and, and I said it because, again, it's not like people are doing theater in L.A. for the money. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know, I sure wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and I also wasn't doing it to get the attention of Hollywood. Right. I was just doing it because I grew up on theater. I grew up going to the PAP Theater. I, my mm. first trip out of the country was to London specifically to see the tempest at the royal shakespeare oh, wow. you know company yeah. so you know like theater has a has had a profound impact on my life um right. and it changed who i am as a human being um it's made me open up to the world and but at the same time theater practitioners are a club that i've never been invited to be a part of hmm. yeah well that's hopefully what we're all sort of trying to change right now as we uh yeah. as we think about bringing theater back online. When did the movie conversation start? When did the idea of turning that into a movie begin? The idea, I mean, it's the conversation really started, um, honestly, in that first LA production. Mm. I'm in Los Angeles. So if you have anything that, that, get, that gets any attention by the end of the second or third week, you have producers and agents coming to see it as well. And um, producers came up to me and um, it was actually the producers who ended up being the producers of the film. Um, mm. Jess um, Calder and Keith Calder. And they basically said, like, we love the play. Um, we would, do you have any interest in adapting it into a film? To which I was like, absolutely not. Like, never going to happen. Why? I, I, um, I wrote it as a play. Yeah. Um, I, I first, I first, I mean, that's not the full truth of it is it's two parts. One, I, I wrote it to be a play for young people. It was I wrote it to be as simple as possible. You could you could stage it with four folding chairs in a high school gymnasium. Right. Like right. I really wanted something that spoke to my 17, 18, 19 year old self. Um, two, I'd already had a taste of Hollywood years earlier and it wasn't a good taste. Hmm. So I, I'd seen the negative version of it, how you could have your ideas twisted and contorted. And I didn't want to I didn't want to subject this piece of work that meant so much to me to that process. So I, for those reasons, I was like, let it live as a play, let it be a play. In fact, you know, at the time I was really just focused on continuing to develop my playwriting career and writing more plays. It wasn't about writing material that could be source material for movies or TV shows. Right. So, you know, it just came from this, that was just what I believed at the time. And, and at the time I did genuinely believe that the play could have a real life out there in the world and be the yeah. type of thing that was produced. And for all the, the successes of the play, I mean, there were, there were twice as many places that didn't want to produce it mm -hmm. for any of the number of the, again, it never went to New York. 
right. you know, and right. when re <laughs> just, there's all these things that just all the walls that hit you and, and the great irony that it took years before in order for me to actually tell this story and have the opportunity to get this story I wrote out there to people, I then had to turn around to Hollywood, which was more mm -hmm. egalitarian than theater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that it's just, again, it's a, and I say none of this with bitterness. I say it more to illuminate the fact that none of our businesses are anywhere near as inclusive as we make them out to be. Right. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like the person who's being victimized or made to feel invisible on Monday, on Tuesday, they're making someone else feel invisible. Right. You know, there yeah. <laughs> we, we all do it that I'm willing to more than admit that I was a, you know, me at 12 years old, I was a little shit. You know, I was oh, yeah. not a good, but we all were. And it's yeah. like, we got to give each other opportunities to collaborate and, and like be allies to one another. It can't just be a, a club for any, for any one group. So after several years in the play kind of running its course, I think after London, we had such a great production in London, we got nominated for the Olivier award. Yeah. Um, and then we didn't transfer to the West end. And it was like, when you don't transfer to the West End, yet again, what, is, what does that say to New York? You see what I mean? What does that right, say yeah. to the New York theater community yeah. and your potential to be produced in New York? Dead on arrival. Right. So again, all these strange political things I had to get educated on just kept on being stumbling blocks. And I kind of got exhausted. And, combined, and, and also, I had started developing my screenwriting career. I was now back in Hollywood. But this time I was back in Hollywood way more on my terms. Mm -hmm. I was writing TV and film projects that, you know, I was really passionate about. Um, and, and my skill set was getting better because every time as many playwrights there are writing film and TV, understand that it's not a one. It's it's apples and oranges. I, I believe you when you change, John, when you move into live action, you have to kind of take a step back and learn your craft. And I had to do a lot of craft learning over the years. And so by the time my skill set got good enough that I felt like, oh, I think I could actually adapt my own play into a film. Whereas at the first at the time that Keith and Jess first came to me, I would have just been optioning the play and someone else would have right. written it. And I and again, I know where they would have probably gone with the story. Mm -hmm. I, I felt a lot better knowing that I'd at least have a first shot at, at translating the play into film. I'll have more with Kemp right after the break. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, here's more with the writer Kemp Powers. And so tell us about that work that you... Because as you say, the play, you can just do with, you know, four chairs and an auditorium. Like, it is... Uh, mm -hmm. it is very tightly focused in the way that so many plays are. It's very, it's very theatrical in that sense, um, in terms of like kind of the way it lives on the stage. How did you think about then taking it uh, to the to the screen in terms of opening it up and shift it, making it more dynamic? I don't know. Like, what, how did you think about what you were? Um, well, I mean, first, opening it up was a keyword. I yeah. really, really wanted to 
And, and the play, the way that, for those who don't know, the, the way the play is structured, it begins when the four guys enter the room. It's real time for 85 minutes, and it ends when they leave. Right. So there's no time jumps. There's no nothing. It's just 85 minutes of guys in a room. So that leaves a lot of their backstory to be, you know, as, as a question mark. I didn't mind doing that with the play because, again, from the very first readings of the play, I saw that young people pull out their phones and Google things when they're interested. Yeah. So it's like anything they didn't know about these guys, they would know by the time they hit the lobby, which was also part of the fun of staging the play, right. is watching people develop this interest. For the film, um, it was a wonderful opportunity to actually, like I said, show the greater world and the crucible year that each of those men was having up to that point, as well as the end result of that transformation. One of the biggest decisions, though, that I had to make, and, and it was a very tough decision, was whether I wanted to, oh, how much to open it up. Because I think one of the things that makes the story special, and I say the story not meaning a play nor film, just the story itself, is that at its heart, the, I want, I believe the audience, it should feel like they're getting to listen in on a conversation they have no business being privy to. I think that's what really makes it special. And I didn't want to lose that for the film. So I still wanted to ultimately have, you know, probably a good half of the, the movie still take place in a pretty confined space while also opening up the story. Of course, it doesn't all take place in the room. There's a few locations we go to throughout the hotel, but it's still a very confined space. But that being said, I don't even think you get to a single line paraphrase from the play until about 45 minutes into the movie. Oh, wow. So I, I kind of started over from scratch, but then I found myself still wanting to get to this vigorous debate, this vigorous conversation. It's still meant to be a conversational um, piece, but I've, there's so many wonderful conversational films that I've seen, you yeah. know, like 12 Angry Men or, you know, uh, A Few Good Men or, you know, you know what I mean? Or The King's yeah. Speech. There's so many that that I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I, yeah. I think that, you know, you don't see as many conversational pieces like that with black characters. But that's also part of the fun is having an Ali movie that's not about boxing, having mm -hmm. a Sam Cooke right. film that's not just about singing and all the performances, you know, having a Jim Brown movie where you never see him hold a football. I, I, that's, that's part of what, because it's not about what they do. It's about who they are. It's about mm -hmm. their humanity. And that's the one thing I wanted both of them to have in common, but they're actually totally different animals. And, right. and writing the film was a very different experience. Did it, how does it influence, how did the shift from inform influence kind of, the the effect of it for you what did characters shift their perspectives at all or their yes. voices or you know the tell me more characters characters change i mean look so the most popular moments in the play aren't even in the film like i didn't even recreate them the mm. probably the most popular moment in the stage play for every audience is this recreation in the room of sam cook's performance at the harlem square club in miami and, and in the play, it's really a show-stopping moment. He breaks the fourth wall. There's a follow spot on him. He's working through the audience. Not even in the film. Right. Don't, don't even reference it. Because I was telling a different story, honestly, in, in the movie. In the, in the film, Malcolm X's dilemma is very much the center of it all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and yeah. in, in, in the play, it's quite a bit different. In the, in the play, I almost joke, I jokingly call the play almost like a Trojan horse. Uh, and that the first half of the play 
you really do kind of feel like it's about Cassius Clay and, right. and it's about his decision. And he is much more the focus in the stage play than in the film. The film, it is very much Malcolm and Malcolm's dilemma that is the central through point of this entire story. So that was a big decision. Um, and that decision impacted how each of the characters was was uh, treated. Um, uh, you know, the the nature of the ensemble in the play, you know, you have six actors you're working with, the four leads, as well as the two guys playing the guards. Right. Um, the, the guards and what they're meant to represent in the stage didn't translate as well to the film. So I use them much more as guards because I also had the luxury of creating other characters um, to help kind of round out some of these ideas. So, you know, like I didn't, I didn't have to have this one character represent all these different, you know, concepts or ideas. I was able to spread it amongst different characters. So it wasn't necessary to have the burden. Therefore, you know, it's, it's a, the, I had other cast members. I was able to, you know, at least, touch a little bit on um, their relationship with women when it came to Sam and his wife, um, which obviously, you know, his wife was really on the, his, his marriage was really on the rocks back then. So yeah, there were, there's, there's so, there's so many differences that to me, in fact, it was so funny because when Regina first called me, when we first met, she was still filming the TV show Watchmen and mm. she read the script and I think she had a really, really positive reaction to it, but then she went out and grabbed the play as well. So she read the play. And when we got on the phone, one of the first things she said was like, she's like, I really wanted to meet you because I can't believe that the same person wrote the play and the screenplay. That's how, so it's not in my mind. Like it's really different. Um, You know, I, I, I pretty much challenged myself to treat my play, my own play as source material. As a screenwriter in Hollywood, you're often given a book, you're giving an article and they go like, what does this inspire? So I wanted to treat my my own play as nothing more than than source material and ultimately tell the story that I wanted to tell in that moment and understand the story that I wanted to tell is going to be different in 2018 than it was in 2012. That was that was exactly my next question is how the story changed for you in terms of where we were in our lives uh, when you were writing it and then how. How is the story landing with you differently now after the events of 2020? Yeah, I mean, well, first, none of us could have predicted 2020. This has been just like, uh, like, oh, so that's that's what it must have been like when, you know, the plague happened or there were smallpox or like, you know, it's it's one of those years that you go like, oh, this is one of those kids are going to read about it in textbooks and go, how did they do it? So none of us could have predicted 2020. Um, That being said, one of the interesting in, in a positive way, things to come out of this very crucible year for all of us is that being unapologetically black is now normal. Uh, when I first wrote the play, part of what stymied it um, on stage was a concern that it would alienate white audiences. That was said to me sometimes directly, sometimes paraphrased, but it was said to me so, so much. And that if it doesn't appeal to our subscribers who are, were described as old white people, or if it makes them uncomfortable, and that there was a certain kind of black play they wanted to see. And I really, that was just such a bummer. Um, yeah. And and, yeah. and I heard that a lot. I heard it a lot. Um, huh. And now what's in, so to speak, is that unapologetic blackness. Um, right. My hope is that because it's in is that the artists creating that work aren't just creating it because it's now something that white audiences are into for the moment. 
because I don't want it to be a fad. So the interesting thing about this time is that people feel like it's something that I wrote for this moment, but that's never really been the case. When we did the first production of the play, um, I remember my original director in an interview saying that it felt like we were entering a new civil rights period. And and the writer almost kind of guffawed as though he was, it was like hyperbole, you know? And during that original production, the Trayvon Martin verdict came through and it was like really this devastating moment. And then the press said, wow, this play is so timely. The production happened in Baltimore, the Freddie Gray incident happened. And people were like, oh my God, this production is so timely. Dunmark, every single production has been, people have discussed how it's timely to that moment. And no one's connected that like, I started writing the play as a time capsule. What's made it timely is that this shit keeps on happening. Right. Yeah. You know, and and it's like, it just keeps on. Ha- I look forward to the day when it is judged just as a time capsule and not as a reflection of the times we're going through. I do think it's supposed to be a reflection of a conversation that black people have been having. But that conversation is a conversation we've been having since W.E.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington. All the way up to today. And it's what, if any, social responsibility does the black artist have in American slash Western society? Um, And and my answer to that is it depends on the situation. You know, the central debate between a Malcolm X and a Sam Cooke is the central debate inside happening. It's my internal monologue that's going on every time before I decide on taking a job or not taking a job. Because you will inevitably, if you are a person of color, a minority, or any underrepresented group, you're going to find yourself in situations where you are offered things that you feel might compromise who you are. And on some days, I think you got to be Sam Cooke about it, which is work within the system to bring about change. But on other days, you got to be a little Malcolm X about it and burn shit down and start over. And that's all it is. I'm just trying to reverse engineer this ongoing debate that we all have, that I think it's good that we have this debate, that we do feel a sense of responsibility, but I just reverse engineered it into the mouths of the men who I think inspire that line of thinking, at least Mm. for my generation, Generation X. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I I will say that uh, for the listeners who um, are listening to this and haven't, the theater people who are listeners and who um, haven't seen the movie yet, it was although you very successfully opened up that story and made it a, fi- a, a real film, I, it did make me miss theater because you can see, you can see the roots of the play. You can see those yeah, four really course. great actors um, having a really great conversation and being, uh, you know, sort of, you know, fighting at each other and joshing each other and you do, do, doing all the things that you do in a good play. Right. Oh um, yeah. So I mean, it, the, uh, I love that. I love the theatricality of it. And I, I didn't yeah. want to lose that. I mean, it started yeah, off as a not, headache, yeah. but then everyone fell in love with it. Regina was like, Oh my God, we have a 12 page scene to shoot, you know? And it's yeah. like, Kemp wrote a 12 page talking. I'm like, I know, but like, it's so much about, but you know, again, now that I also direct as well, I feel even worse about it. But, you know, you're not thinking that like, oh, wow, you got to shoot that whole scene and then move the cameras and get coverage from a different angle. And they got to do it again and again and again. And but I also think that like ignorance might be bliss because the fact that I did that, Hmm. the performances we got were dynamite. They were just like I really thought that it's interesting. Regina came out of that process and I believe she's more she's actually now interested in maybe doing stuff on stage 
Great. You, you know, and it's like that's what that's how awesome theater is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, there's there's no. That's why I'll, I'll always write theater. You know, mm. it, as crazy as times have been now, and as busy as I am, not three weeks ago we were shooting a reading of a play at the Kirk Douglas Theater here in Los oh, wow. Angeles. And it was like first COVID protocols. And, you know, it just because I think that theater allows us to tackle stories that no other medium allows us to tackle, um, and whether it be in New York or London or, or anywhere. I mean, I've seen plays on subjects that movies are light years behind. Um, and I just, yeah, I just... Again, theater was such a, a huge impact on me going back to such an early age because I didn't want to go to the theater the first time I went. I was mm. dragged kicking and screaming to a theater and I misbehaved, got in trouble um, and as punishment had to perform at the band shell in um, Prospect Park in Brooklyn as, oh. as part of my punishment. Um, that's what my teacher did to me. And I tell you, that humiliating experience forced me to really dive into some shit. And, and that play was The Tempest, which is why all those years later, I flew to London to see The Tempest. Yeah. Because that was a play that I butchered um, <laughs> in front of my pair, my mom. And, Who'd and you Brooklyn. play? Um, I think I was playing Prospero. Wow. Yeah. Easy so part. it was easy part. Yeah, it was just, yeah. <laughs> it was, but then it was it, like the other classes, each, each grade had to do a scene. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these the, the other classes all like we were we were sitting there with our scripts and just misprint like, everything was wrong. And another class came in and like they were in costumes like the Caliban had no shirt on and he had like a thing around his head. And I was like, this is the most humiliating <laughs> moment of my life. I need to understand this play. Right. You know, yeah. and it made me do a deep dive into theater. And, and that's the thing about theater that I love that people can sometimes forget is that. Theater has the ability, like music, to reach the kid who can't be reached and really change them yeah. <laughs> and really change them. And that's what it was for me. This is a very busy time with those two films uh, yeah. happening for you. Now, what is on your plate coming up? You're, I imagine you're going to take a take a break after uh, no, after I'm... one night in Miami lands. But uh, after that, what are you working on? No, <laughs> I'm already I'm already up to my eyeballs in the next couple of things. I'm a <laughs> Look, man, I got started on this late. You know, this is a second career, so I'm, I'm 47 years old. I don't feel like I can sit around on my ass for mm. for too long. I've I've got some. I got so many ideas in my head, and I, and I want to try to get out as many of them as I possibly can while I'm upright on this earth. Yeah. Um, whatever medium that fits them best. Um, like I said, I have a play that we we just um, recorded over at the Kirk Douglas that I think they're going to screen it as part of the they they. Of course, because of COVID, theaters have had to adapt. So the Kirk, Doug Kirk Douglas started a program where they do stage readings of plays and they record them with three cameras, edit it together, and then they're going to stream it. And I believe that's going to be streamed in February. Great. So I, I call, hope, what's that play called? Uh, Krista McAuliffe's Eyes Were Blue. Great. Um, and it's, you know, it's set basically in Brooklyn in the 1980s. It's probably the most personal piece I've ever written. It's really inspired by, you know, my own childhood, um, going to school, junior high in, in South Brooklyn, what's, you know, Carroll Gardens, Red Hook area um, right. in, in the 80s. So, you know, I wanted to really write something about that. Um, you know, got a great cast. Um, Giovanna Depo, the Emmy nominee, is uh, playing yeah. the, he played the lead in the, the reading. So, um, yeah, we did that. Um, <clears throat> a couple of film, there's one, a screenplay I'm writing um, for um, 
for Barack and Michelle Obama's company. Um, right. So, and and there's another project I'm doing for um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller's company. Right. So again, they'll they'll be announced, I think, in the coming months or year, or whatever, whenever they get announced. Yeah. But um, you know, like Steve Jobs said, man, you can't you can't dwell on your success. You kind of have to move on and just get on to the next thing. And I yeah. I'm a believer in that as well. Well, we are looking forward to seeing what's coming next for you, not only on screen, but especially for me anyway, uh, on stage uh, all over the country and in New York. We got to get we got to get uh, one night in Miami or another play. Of yours. That's the goal, man. I got to say that is still the thing that I'm just it's um, it's a bummer. I'm just yeah. my home. And, um, yeah. you know, and I and I and I write stuff with characters that are from that place. And I just right. it'll be it'll be nice one day when I can finally find a stage to get some work on yeah i have i have faith that it will happen uh, yeah. soon, so, um, thank you listen thanks so much for your time it was great talking to you great talking to you as well gordon that was kemp powers the screenwriter of soul now on disney plus and one night in miami which comes to amazon prime january 15th if you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of stagecraft you can rate and review us on apple podcasts it really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and i do or tell a friend. You can find past episodes of Stagecraft or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on all the other pod places, including Spotify and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is another great place to find more theater for your ears. I'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.